Podcast Network. We're joined by Marlins radio broadcaster Glenn Geffner. Personally, to me, he's been a big motivation to me. Get trying to learn more Marlins knowledge and information as I've been driving across the country two times. And luckily today, we're going to be able to sit down with him. So, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Glenn. Really happy to be with you, Tyler. Thanks for having me on. You know, I think it's wonderful what you guys do on Marlins Radio. And I think, honestly, I, and a lot of people agree with me because whenever I put it there, put one of my tweets out, I was like, you know, Mar- Marlins Radio just hits different than a broadcast. And people were like, yes, 100% agree. And you and Dave Van Horn, you guys do a great job not only painting the picture, you paint the picture perfectly so a person that's just listening can actually see the field without ever actually looking at the TV. And that's a wonderful thing that you guys are able to do. How exactly have you been able to build up uh, yourself to be able to do something like that and just paint the image for a baseball fan? Well, I appreciate uh, your kind words and for noticing what we're trying to do. Uh, To me, there's something special about baseball on the radio, more so than on TV. And everybody loves to watch TV and and, and see what's going on. But I like the challenge of having to paint that picture, as you discussed. Uh, I grew up in South Florida long before the Marlins existed. I, I was a kid here in the 1970s and into the 80s. Uh, and I fell in love with baseball when at the time all we had down here was spring training baseball with the Orioles in Miami, the Yankees in Fort Lauderdale. We had University of Miami baseball. My family would make summer trips to the Northeast. We'd go to major league games, different ballparks. But I fell in love with baseball, uh, listening to games on the radio. Back in the old days before the Marlins were around, WIOD would have Yankees games every night. And if the Yankees were off, they might have an Orioles game or the occasional Red Sox game. And I grew up with baseball on the radio. And, and I just loved listening. I literally would fall asleep. It's like the uh, Norman Rockwellian image of a kid falling asleep listening to a ball game. That's what I did growing up. Uh, and I got into journalism in high school and you know, just thought as much as I love baseball, I'd love to cover baseball. Uh, and writing seemed like a way to do it. When I was in high school in the mid-1980s, you didn't have TV and radio stations in schools. There wasn't the opportunity to get broadcast experience the way students have today. Uh, but when I finally got to college at Northwestern, where I went to study journalism, I got involved from day one with the student radio station. And that's where it began for me. And that's when I began to realize, you know what, I'd really like to do this. Uh, I want to be at the game and not just writing about it. I want to be talking about it. And, uh, you know, I started my bedroom as a kid turning the volume down on the TV and broadcasting games as a seven, eight-year-old. And I'd have my baseball cards out. If the Red Sox were playing the Yankees, I'd have my Red Sox card on one side, my Yankees cards on the other side. So I'd have statistical information and I'd broadcast the games in my bedroom. So when I got to college and they had auditions for the student radio station, I figured, hey, I've got a lot of experience doing this. I've been calling games for years. I've called postseason games. So I was able to get involved with the student radio station, Northwestern, and we called football games, basketball games, baseball games, uh, did a talk show, got technical experience, things like that. Uh, and then was able, coming out of school, to get a job in the minor leagues. And that's where it all began for me, working in AAA right out of school. Yeah, so that's actually a great point you bring up is how you ran your bedroom at you know, 7 and 8. And to me, I think you, your knowledge of the game with your statistical knowledge and everything that you pass on to people like me, honestly. And I think that kind of started, honestly, in your uh, in your bedroom with the baseball cards. Do you feel like it did. you're – Beginning at seven and eight, whenever you were flipping over those baseball cards, looking at those stats, looking at the fun facts that you see on all the cards all the time, how much of an impact do you think just being seven years old, how much does that help you in you know the year 2020 with just everything and your process in which you cover the team? 
it made all the difference in the world. Uh, when my parents wanted me to start reading as a 10, 11, 12 year old on a regular basis, I read baseball books. I read Lou Gehrig biographies. I read about Mo Berg. I, I read books like that. Uh, I, I read, you know, the best team money could buy about the 77, 78 New York Yankees, who I listened to on the radio as an eight, nine year old. Uh, and that's why I kind of got into reading was reading about baseball. And then I went on and I moved on to other things uh, and read more real world type stuff also. But uh, no question that passion for baseball developed at a very young age. And that's why it makes me sad when I go into schools now, go to career days, things like that. And I ask, does anybody here collect baseball cards? And nobody collects baseball cards anymore. Uh, baseball cards were a big deal for me. And uh, they were part of how I fell in love with the game, even at a time when not every game was on TV, not every game was available, where you'd get the sporting news once a week and you'd look at all the statistics that were accumulated. Uh, you wouldn't you know, necessarily see the day-to-day -day type stuff. So, uh, you know, I love reading box scores in the paper. I started reading the newspaper because I'd go to look at the box scores every day. I would wake my parents up on school days. I'd go into their room. I would have already gotten the newspaper. I would have read the newspaper. And I'd go in and do a sports cast. Hey, last night, the Red Sox beat the Yankees 4-3. to three. Jim Rice hit his 16th home run. Jerry Remy had two hits and an RBI. Uh, that's how I started. And uh, to this day, th those are very fond memories. Uh, and, and they've, you know, it, it's been cool now. This is my 29th year in baseball, my 24th year in the big leagues over the years to have had the chance to then work with people whose baseball cards I collected as a kid and to have really gotten to know some of these people and to call some of them friends over the years. Uh, it's been very special for me. No question about that. And I kind of felt that same way, uh, what you just brought up about how it feels special to actually meet the people that you collected the baseball cards. Like for me, it, it was Don Madeline, you know, like 10 years ago, I had some Don Madeline collection and here we are now, you know, I, I asked Don Madeline a question and that to me, I feel like special and it, it could only be special just to everyone who ever meets like their people that they always looked up to in sports, you know, for you, who was that? Who was that one particular player that you were like, this is the person I want to meet. And did you ever meet him? Well, you know what? There are players, there are broadcasters also, because I grew up really listening and watching and studying broadcasting quite a bit. Uh, there are a lot. And, you know, as time goes on, like I said, I've been doing this for 29 years now. These are your colleagues. So I don't look at them as a fan anymore, but it is nice to reflect back to being a kid. And, hey, I told Donnie the first time I met him, I had the Hitman poster in my bedroom. Uh, and I was a big Don Mattingly fan when, for a while, he was the best player in baseball all around. Uh, I loved watching Don Mattingly play. Now I get to work with him on a daily basis. Uh, there are a lot of those. You know, I, the first time I met Harry Carey was a big deal back in spring training 1997 in Mesa, Arizona. I got to sit and watch an entire game with Harry Carey. Neither one of us were working. We were together in a broadcast booth uh, at the Cubs spring training ballpark in Mesa when I was working with the Padres. And just to, to sit next to this guy who I had listened to on a regular basis when I was in college at Northwestern in Chicago, uh, that was a big deal. The first time I met Phil Rizzuto, who I listened to growing up doing the Yankees games, you know, certainly meeting Vince Scully and becoming somebody who at the start of every Marlins Dodgers series would go in and would talk with Vin and he'd ask me questions about the Marlins. I'd ask him questions about the Dodgers. We'd talk about life, talk about baseball, whatever. Uh, you know, it's neat to be colleagues with these people. And, you know, there, there were guys, one I always think of is Rob Piccolo, who was not a household name. Rob Piccolo was an infielder, mostly with the Brewers and the A's in the 70s. I had his baseball card, could never pronounce the name, could never figure it out, P-I-C-C-I-O-L-O. -C -C -O -O. I always wondered, how does this guy pronounce his name? 
Then I get to San Diego, and he's the bench coach with the Padres, and he became a great, great friend. He passed away much too early. But here's this guy from my baseball card collection who I'm now dealing with on a, a daily basis, and uh, I knew how to pronounce his name after all those years finally. So that happens a lot. Uh, you know, now as time goes on, I've been doing this so long that most of the players could be my children at this point. They could be my sons because I'm older and they keep getting younger. But uh, particularly early in my career, there was a lot of that, getting to be around people who I'd watched on TV, whose baseball cards I collected, who I'd read about, uh, and that was certainly very special. Yeah, and I think you're bringing up a great point here. So you you had your mentors and you had the people that you looked up to in the broadcast booth, and now we have the next generation of people that are coming up, and they're listening to you and Dave Van Horn on the radio. What would you say to those people that are trying to aspire to be like you, just like how you aspired to be like Vin Scully back in the day? What would you say to them? What what would, you, what, would what words would you have for them? That's a great question, Tyler. The first thing I would say uh, is learn everything you can about the sport or sports you want to cover. Read everything that you can read. Watch, listen, study. Uh, get as big a base of knowledge you can possibly get. And then if you really want to do this, you need to find a way to get out and actually broadcast games. You can't learn in a classroom how to broadcast a game. you got to get on the air somewhere. Uh, and if it's just Going out to Marlins Park with your iPhone and recording play-by-play from the outfield seats, there are people who do that. I literally know people who have done that. Uh, if it's going to high school and having a chance to call your high school team's baseball games, going to college, getting involved with student radio and television, working in the minor leagues, you graduate up to that level, you've got to get out and you've got to do games. And the more games you do, the better you get. The more things you see, the more experience you have, the more people you're around. You never know when you might meet somebody who becomes very influential in helping you advance in your career. So if you want to call games, you've got to get out and call games. Again, high school games, American Legion games, Little League games. Sit in your bedroom, as I did, calling the game of the week on NBC when I was a kid, before every game was on TV or on your iPhone. iPhones didn't exist back in those days. Uh, you got to get out and you got to do it. And then what I would say is when you have a tape that you feel good about, not just the first thing that you've done, but when you feel like I've done this a lot, I really feel like I'm beginning to develop my own identity. I'm not copying anybody. I'm not trying to sound like Vin Scully. I'm not trying to sound like John Miller. I'm not trying to be Dave Van Horn or anybody else. When you feel like you've kind of found your identity and you've got a tape you feel pretty good about, you should reach out to broadcasters who you respect. And it's easier to do now than ever before through social media, email. I get emails. I get direct messages all the time from people who ask, hey, will you listen to my tape? Uh, and, you know, when things slow down a little bit, maybe not in the heat of the season, but when things are a little bit quieter in the off season, I do that stuff all the time. I do a lot of mentoring and, and go into schools and work with a lot of college broadcasters at various schools, a lot of minor league broadcasters. And, uh, you know, there are people out there like me who are happy to help in any way they can. If you just reach out. And I think back to when I was in school, what it would have meant to be able to send my tape to a major league broadcaster. I never thought to do it. Maybe I could have done it. I never thought to do it. But there are people out there, not everyone, but there are plenty of us out there who will listen, who will offer some constructive feedback. And you never know, you might develop a relationship with somebody that can help you down the road. Yeah, that's a great point. Just get out there and just pretty much go get it done. Like there, You, you got to do it. You can't hide behind anything. There is no like resume you can submit. It's all about just getting out there and getting it done. And, and here's the thing, Tyler. I'll add this now. It's easier than ever because of the internet to do stuff. So you might go to a high school or a college that doesn't offer opportunities to broadcast. You can create your own opportunities because all you need right now is a laptop. And you exactly. can do a lot of things. 
I know somebody who uh, went to a school. He wanted to broadcast. They didn't do it. Uh, he started a sports network for his university. And they started by doing baseball games and soccer games, and they moved on to more and more. Uh, and now he's long out of school, but the university still has this program going on that he started years ago. So if you don't have that chance, you can create it for yourself now easier than ever. Yeah, and I'll be honest. I'm going to spoil one of my ideas that I'm going to try and go through in the future. So maybe someone will take it and run with it before I do. But there's actually – so if you actually just look at the GameCast on ESPN, you see it all throughout YouTube. People will actually just have the GameCast open, and they'll be watching the game, and they'll have the GameCast open, and they'll broadcast the game like that, just talking about mm -hmm. their opinions. And YouTube mm – -hmm. I think YouTube and platforms like – just streaming platforms in general are just giving everyone the opportunity that needs to do it. Maybe they just – maybe talking with you and get you giving them that push – I think that might just get someone out there that may, you know, in 20 years or so come up to you and be like, Hey, Hey Glenn, there was that podcast that I was listening to that one day and you just said, go do it. And so I went and talked to my little league and I was out there broadcasting games. Be great. How, how does, I'd love to hear that. that? Feel, you know, it, it's great. You know, I, it's funny. A couple of years ago, Marlins play an almost annual exhibition game against the university of Miami early in spring training every year. And I always go in to meet the WVUM broadcasters, the student broadcasters from the UM. Uh, and several years ago, I remember this like it was yesterday, one of the broadcasters said, I've been listening to you my whole life. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that. I'm not that old a guy. I'm 51 years old. I, I've been in baseball a long time, but I never heard somebody say, I've been listening to you my whole life. Uh, and that's that's cool that, that somebody is that devoted a fan and, and follows what you're doing closely. And maybe if you can inspire somebody or help somebody down the road, that's very rewarding. No question. And, you know, speaking of which covering games, this year has been different than all the other 29 years. This year has you've been pretty much all remote, uh, pretty much not really able to have the interaction with the players and the managers that you're used to having. How much of a difference do you feel like your process has been? And how different has it been in the booth calling these games from afar? Without well, when the team is at home, we're in our regular radio booth and we call the game like normal when the team is at Marlins Park. When the team's on the road, we're in a different booth down the hall and we are calling it off the television monitors. And that's very different. And it took me one full game to kind of get the hang of it and to realize what I have access to, what I don't have access to, what I have to adjust in my style, where I need to lay back a little bit more to wait for some things that I'm just used to being able to look out at the field and see all the time. But after about one full game, I kind of got the hang of that a little bit. And I've actually come to enjoy it a little bit. Uh, not that I wouldn't rather be at the ballpark on the road with the team all the time. But the other point you make is an important point. Normally, we're on the charter with the team. We're in the hotels with the team. We're on the road with the team. We're in the clubhouse with the team on a daily basis. We're on the batting cage on a daily basis. And that's where I get the information I try to bring to the broadcast every day. Um, I'm not one who uses game notes or media guides that teams put out on a daily basis. I want to have my own stuff. So I do all my own preparation for both teams every single day. And because this year we haven't had that one-on-one -on -one time with players, you have the group Zoom calls. What I've done uh, is I've stayed in touch with people, whether it's on the phone, whether it's via email, whether it's through text messaging, uh, through private Zoom conversations. Uh, I've been able to get my own stuff, whether it's talking to Don Mattingly separate or, or coaches separately or players separately, because I still want to bring somebody to the broadcast every night that nobody else has. So if the guys on TV or my partner are pulling stats out of the game notes, I want to have something totally different. If they're looking at Sixto Sanchez's media guide bio, I want to have stuff about Sixto that they don't have. Uh, and so it's been harder to do that this year where you don't have that daily access to people to get them one on one. But I, I've been able to maintain that 
uh, you know, just having to work a little bit harder at it. But fortunately, over the years, you develop relationships and there's a rapport with people and you're able to get people on the phone or to respond to your text or your email, or your direct message, uh, and hopefully still continue to provide the listener that detailed information that he or she wouldn't get anywhere else. And I believe you 100%. I think you do that all the time. And I think that's just through hard work and dedication and, and just honing your craft. Because as you as you said, even with the media-wise people, people, you know, we, we all have the same Zoom calls and we all hear the same things. But it's what you're willing to do outside of that media Zoom calls to get information that no one else has. And you do that right quite, quite well. And outside of the media guides, I remember I was driving from California and you brought up the fact that Ryan, LaVarne, Ryan LaVarneway is one of two Yale players ever. Uh, for the Marlins. And I had, I personally had no idea on that. And then I, I just kind of, then you went into a deep dive, just going through Yale baseball history. And that to me, I was like, you don't get that in a media guide. Like that's something right. that you, you read. And then you dug through all the Yale history in baseball and you gave out some wonderful information that I think it teaches. I think that's the number one thing you do. You, you teach and you, you paint an image for the, for the person that's on the radio and I think that's pre- I think that's pretty special. And um, how exactly would you tell someone that they can paint that image? Like how how how, how what is your creative process uh, to paint the image for a, a, a person that's on the radio? Well, when you talk about the storytelling type stuff, uh, you know, part of it is enjoying the research end of things. I enjoy spending time on the internet. I enjoy reading things. I enjoy asking a question, getting the answer to the question. And then what's the next question and how much deeper can you dive on something like this? So I enjoy that part of the process. Part of it also is relationships and talking to people over the years and filing things away and never knowing when you may use information. You mentioned Ryan LaVarnway and Yale specifically. It just so happens I've been a longtime friend of one of the associate athletic directors at Yale. And so I'm in touch with him when Ryan LaVarnway gets called up or Craig Breslow is here and he might feed me a nugget or things like that. Uh, You know, you have a lot of relationships over the years. When I was in San Diego, I spent six years with the Padres. I was with the Red Sox for five years. I've been in Miami now. This is my 14th season with the Marlins. Um, You develop relationships with people. And I've been lucky to be around some unbelievable people, unbelievable players, managers, coaches, front office executives. I work with Tony Gwynn. Every day in San Diego, I learned more baseball talking one-on-one with Tony Gwynn, more about hitting a lot about life talking one-on-one with Tony Gwynn on a daily basis for the final five years of his career. Uh, And to this day, there are things that are going to happen in a game where I'm going to remember something that Tony Gwynn said to me in 1999 that applies in this very moment in this game tonight in 2020. And I'm going to quote Tony Gwynn on that. I talked to Ricky Henderson about base stealing. Uh, you know, in Boston, you're around Pedro Martinez and and Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz and Nomar Garcia Parra and players like that. Uh, you know, I work with managers like Bruce Bochy in San Diego my whole time there with Terry Francona in Boston, uh, Don Mattingly here in Miami, Jack McKeon during my time with the Marlins, Freddie Gonzalez I learned a lot from. You go on down the line, you take things from everybody. Uh, but but it's knowing, I think, what, what I find interesting, which might be different than what somebody else finds interesting. I'm, I'm a big information guy, but I also appreciate you don't want to overwhelm people with numbers and statistics. You can use numbers and stats to help tell a story, but people would rather hear a story. They'd rather be given context and perspective uh, and anecdotes and, and something that Kurt Schilling said to me in 2004 that makes sense right now. Uh, so, you know, really a lot of it is 
conversations I've had with people over the years that you have because you develop relationships and then you just file stuff away and you find the right spot. And it doesn't mean that I'll never use that nugget again. There are a lot of things I will reuse, but it's knowing when to find the right spot to use something. And part of it also is knowing when not to force something in. Uh, you know, I hear a lot of broadcasters who you can tell have done a lot of preparation and it's the ninth inning of one one game and they're going to force this note in, even though it's got nothing to do with what's going on right now. You know, and I think that's one of the improvements I've made over the years is I've realized you're just not going to get in everything that you have and maybe you use it tomorrow or maybe you use it the next time you play against this opponent or maybe you use it in three years or maybe you never use it. I have things in my notes that have been in there for a decade that I've never gotten to yet. And maybe tomorrow will be the perfect day to use one of those nuggets. Maybe it won't be. But uh, there was a great line Doc Emmerich, the great hockey broadcaster, used that I heard one time where he said, you do all this preparation and you know going in, you're probably only going to use 5% of what you have. And I would say, if even that, you never know which 5% it's going to be. So you still do all that preparation every day. And then cumulatively, when you do it over enough years, you just build up this unbelievable library of information. And you hope that you're able to apply it appropriately and uh, that listeners like yourself appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And so I have to ask, what's the one nugget you've been holding on to that you just you just got to get out Oh, boy. Uh, that's a good one. I actually used one last night when Hyunjin Ryu pitched. Uh, I had this note about a movie called Mr. Go that he made a cameo appearance in in South Korea. It was a 3D movie that was shot in 2013. And I hadn't gotten to it during all his years with the Dodgers or even his first start with the Blue Jays against us earlier this year. I got to tell the story of Mr. Go, this crazy movie about a gorilla that uh, winds up signing with the Doosan Bears and transforms the franchise. And he made a cameo as himself in that movie. You know, there are things like that, that you just, you know, sometimes they're, they're serious. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're kind of throwaway things. Uh, I, I've got some Philadelphia history type stuff that I always think this trip into Philadelphia, I'm going to use this. Uh, I've never gotten to it. There's so many things. I don't even know where to begin. Uh, but I like history on top of liking baseball. I'm a big history guy. And I like to be able to, to tie things in historically, uh, not just baseball history, but the fact that, you know, after John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln uh, and he was captured, he was held prisoner right on the site where Nationals Park stands today. And there was a thought at one time that that piece of land had some sort of a jinx over it because John Wilkes Booth had been held prisoner there at one time. You know, little things like that that uh, certainly aren't the headline you lead off with in the first inning, but there's a time and a place for everything. And I like collecting that stuff. And never knowing when I'm going to use it because every game is different. And in some games you use a ton of stuff. Some games you use absolutely nothing that you did, but it's kind of about having the feel for what's going to fit, what's going to work when you use it. And uh, to me, that's a large part of the fun of the whole process. Yeah, just the solid flow and the listeners, you guys can't see it, but uh, behind Glenn is it's an entire bookshelf of uh, just information. It looks like, and I have to ask, what's been your favorite book that you think a listener that maybe is aspiring to be a baseball historian that they should read and that you learned a lot from? Well, that's a good question. Uh, there are so many that are so different. A book I just recently read during the shutdown. It's not a history book, but it's a book to me that's very important about baseball in 2020, it's called MVP Machine, and it, it's about the things that players like Trevor Bauer, who is featured prominently in this book, are doing to uh, physically and analytically improve themselves in their games, how hitters 
are developing, how pitchers are developing. It's called the MVP machine. Uh, and I really enjoyed that book. Gave me a lot of perspective on, on things that are going on at driveline and facilities like that with private hitting coaches who have transformed careers of players like Mookie Betts, Justin Turner. Uh, that in the year 2020, I think is a very interesting book to read. Because you can see it, because like you said, you've been casting for 29 years. You've seen the shift of boom baseball from where, hey, we're going to do defensive shifts. Hey, it's not really about line drives or, you know, or anymore. It's about, hey, we need either home run or strikeout. You see the evolution of the sport of just basketball with just information. Do you feel like baseball is going along alongside that with just all the information they have now? They're just trying to optimize everything that they possibly can on the field. No question. Even – not in the 29 years that I've done this, but in the last five to 10 years, it's been transformed completely. And teams that were slow to learn that uh, were left behind, quite honestly. And those who were out front had a big advantage for a while, then everybody caught up. So now everybody is still trying to figure out what's the next big thing that we can uncover and have access to before anybody else reaches it. Uh, so I I've enjoyed that a lot. You know, there are those, including myself, who might question the enjoyment of the style of play these days when it's all the three true outcomes, home runs, strikeouts, and walks. To me, that's not as enjoyable as watching a team play exciting baseball. I love home runs, but I also love watching somebody hit a triple. I love seeing a guy hit a single and steal second and put pressure on defense with his speed. Uh, but you're right. To me, there's a fine line, though, and particularly on the broadcast and especially on radio relative to TV – you don't want to turn baseball into math class. And while these numbers are great for evaluators, for general managers, for scouting directors, for people in front offices to acquire maybe undervalued talent, I don't want to hit the listener over the head with statistics. And anytime I use, I have to explain what this stat means. You can do that on TV a little bit more where the fan can watch the action. But when you're talking between pitches on radio, you can't spend a ton of time explaining what FIP is every time you want to talk about fielding independent pitching. It's a valuable statistic, and it's one I look at. But every time I use it on the radio, I have to explain exactly what it means. And you don't always have the time to do that. So it's a fine line, but there's no doubt the way the game is played has evolved. And uh, look, you've seen a dramatic change with the Marlins just in the last couple of years with a renewed – or not even renewed, but a, a first-time uh, – focus on analytics and the kind of players they bring in and there, there are lineup optimization programs who are the nine best players for Donnie to use in the lineup tonight and it doesn't tell you who should hit first second third fourth fifth but it tells you these are the best nine guys not just because of their batter pitcher matchup numbers against the opposing starter but because the opposing starter is this style of pitcher and this type of hitter while his numbers might not be as good as another guy's this type of hitter, this individual hitter, hits that type of pitcher better than maybe that guy does. And so you try to optimize your lineup on a nightly basis. You try to optimize defensive positionings you talked about with shifts. Uh, it's interesting to watch. I like the science behind it all. Uh, I'm not one who says you should ban shifts. To me, if you've done the work, if you have the knowledge, you ought to be able to take advantage of that. So it's a big part of the game. And one of the challenges for me in recent years has been how to – phase that into the broadcast without overwhelming people too much with numbers that they may not have interest in, they may not understand completely. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you can look at the fangraphs.com whenever you search up a player and you have 50 stats that are just X FIP, you know, FIP, you know, expected ERA and stuff like that. And it, I think it can overwhelm anyone. Sometimes whenever you just look at fangraphs, you're like, 
wait, this is a new stat I've never heard of, and now you have to research a different one. And I like to think as baseball and all sports, just in general, is like a yo-yo. You're going to throw it down, and right now we're kind of in the three true outcome. What do you think baseball is going to be back, uh, going to become when it comes back? Like, what's the next transition for baseball? That's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, I think a couple of years ago, you saw pitchers having success pitching up in the strike zone. That's kind of where uh, things change. Now you see hitters who've adapted because of launch angle. It's hard to elevate a pitch that's up in the strike zone. When guys are thinking about the the swing path and trying to elevate a pitch up, you just can't do that most of the time. Uh, but now hitters have made adjustments where they're laying off those pitches more, and uh, pitchers need to make an adjustment. It's a constant uh, game of adjustment. I'm not really sure. I don't think I'm smart enough to tell you, Tyler, what the next trend will be. Um, it's a great question, and, and it's one that uh, I ought to put some thought into. Maybe I'll get back. Next time we do this, I'll have a better answer for you on that. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I'm really curious because you just have to see – you didn't expect the launch angle stuff to appear the way it did, and now you see pitchers pitching the way they are and with the different balls as that is. So you never know what exactly could change. I'm just – I'm always curious on what's next because what's present right now is present. And, you know, we have to enjoy that and embrace that for what it is. But what's coming, it can be completely different because you're, you're seeing kids nowadays that are growing up with a driveline baseball, et cetera, just maximizing everything they possibly can with information. Like I was reading something the other day, the biggest pitchers right now are all taking piano lessons. Because piano, it teaches you to control the fingers and strengthen your fingers. Mm. So you actually, you're able to have a higher spin rate. And so that's now coming up as the player, as the pitchers are starting to come up. And you just see it. There's, there's a 14-year-old kid that we haven't even heard about yet that is doing everything they possibly can to maximize. Do you think that's been just a big change just in baseball as it is? As all of these players that have just come up in like the past 10 years, they're learning and they're, they're embracing stats and sports science in a way that just no one else really did. Yeah, they're playing travel ball at a young age now, and they have access to uh, rap soto machines and things like that. Uh, you know, at one point it was a big time for a young kid to throw with a radar gun, and now all of a sudden they've got all sorts of uh, tracking devices for spin rate and things like that. Uh, in a way, you say it's almost too much at, at certain ages. Uh, I also am a believer that kids who grew up playing travel baseball exclusively and going to the prospect showcases uh, to me are at a disadvantage relative to the kids who play football in the fall and basketball in the winter and baseball in the spring. And uh, you know, maybe their bodies don't take the same beating. If you're not pitching year round, uh, you got more bullets by the time you get to high school and college and into professional baseball. Uh, there are skills that can be developed playing basketball that can help you in baseball. Just like you said, there are skills playing piano that can help you playing baseball. Uh, I think it's sad that people are putting all their eggs in the one basket these days. And, but we are kind of getting to the point where that generation of kids has reached the major leagues. And look, a lot of them are going to have a lot of success. Others are going to burn out or blow out uh, and maybe won't have success. And I do think you will still have stories of people who played all three sports and uh, who are good base runners because they've got good first step quickness from their time on the football field or on the basketball court or, or their basketball point guard reflexes help them in baseball one way or another so uh you know to me i'd rather see people who are more well-rounded who are doing more different things but you raise a great great point about the technology that's available and when you ask that question what's next that's the exact question that's being asked in 30 front offices today and look you've seen different kinds of people coming into baseball front offices for the last not even 10 years 15 20 years now uh, it's not all old crusty baseball men 
You've got your Ivy Leaguers. You got your people coming out of uh, business school who have different perspectives on things, and they're all trying to figure out what is next. You had the Moneyball era. We've moved way beyond Moneyball now, but what team is going to come up with the next big thing first and have that advantage for a couple of years till somebody else figures it out? Maybe you'll be the guy who figures it out, Tyler, but uh, whoever is is going to be very much uh, in the spotlight for a while. Yeah, but also to that kind of in the same way, those same Ivy League people that are coming out of business schools, you're seeing you're going to see a little bit of a difference because there's going to be a yin and a yang. So as they continue to do what they're doing, they're trying to change the game. You got people like you. You talk to Tony Gwynn. He's the hidden guy. He like yep. he is, he he is Mr. Padre, and he understands everything about the fundamentals of hitting. Well, those Ivy Leaguers, they're not going to understand that. They just look at the numbers no. and they'd be like, You're oh, right. But the smart ones like Theo Epstein, who I work with for years, first in San Diego, then in Boston, also surround themselves with really good baseball people. So you get both sides of it. And that's how Theo Epstein has had the success that he's had over the years and others as well. But Theo's the guy I know the best in that group. Uh, and that's how you do it by having all, all the analytical answers, but also all the baseball answers because more so than any sport baseball is about heart and grit and, and human beings accomplishing things uh, that, that maybe based on their size, you wouldn't think they could, or maybe based on their background, you wouldn't think they could, they can in baseball. And it's not all about numbers. And again, I come back to the, the line I used earlier about baseball shouldn't be math class and the people who are evaluating talent, the best don't make it simply math class. You can use those numbers to learn some things, no question, but you got to put your eyes on players, and, and only by doing that do you realize what you really have. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate just uh, just about that because people need to watch the players, and you see the layoffs with all the scouts all throughout baseball and all that, and it's really unfortunate that we're losing that because you never know what player we might be missing. You know, you always hear about Mike Trout coming from uh, Millville, New Jersey, and no one went to go see him because he was buried in New Jersey. And so as we continue to lose scouts, you know, I, I'm – I am a little troubled, though, that we're going to lose players like that that are just never going to be seen. But hopefully with the Internet and the prospect games and the showcase events, maybe we'll be able to bring those out. But I think you brought up a great point that how important a healthy balance is in front offices. And you can see just the front offices like uh, Pittsburgh, who they just didn't embrace the stats at all or anything. So they just kind of fell apart and they all got collapsed. And I think you bring up the great point of that, of the balance and as baseball continues to grow and everything continues to evolve, what do you think is the next opportunity for a, for baseball to embrace and how, how do you think they're going to do it? That's an interesting question. You know, in in talking about players who emerge, who might've fallen through the cracks, when you hear that you're about to lose 40 minor league baseball affiliates, uh, that's 40 teams, fewer jobs for players who might come out of nowhere and end up in the big leagues as a 17th round draft pick or as a ninth round draft pick. We just uh, saw a lot of Jacob deGrom who was a ninth round draft pick who's gone on to have a pretty good career for himself. We just had a five round draft this year. Jacob deGrom would not have been drafted had he come out in the year 2020. Uh, it doesn't and, mean he wouldn't have signed somewhere next year. What's that? They're going to do, no, do another right. five round. Next exactly. Year. And so with the minor leagues getting smaller with the draft getting shorter, Uh, you're going to miss out on some opportunities for some people. And that's unfortunate. And I think we've seen for years uh, simply because of the nature of baseball and the years in the minor leagues, a lot of athletes who could make a choice between playing football or basketball or baseball or choosing other sports. uh, And that's unfortunate for baseball. But, uh, 
you know, I do think you're at a point where teams do understand the need to strike that balance between the analytics and what you see with your eyes. Uh, the, the what's next stuff, you keep asking me those questions, Tyler, and they're really throwing me for a loop. Uh, I, I don't know where, where you go next. Uh, you know, we, we've seen a lot of tweaks to the way the game is played on the field with some of the new rules this year, some of which I like, some of which I don't like. Uh, but but for me, uh, the, the changes I'm looking for are the ones that might have less to do with how you put a team together and more to do with how you keep people around this country interested in baseball and watching in ballparks in person or on TV or listening on the radio, uh, how you rebuild a fan base that has gotten smaller. It's gotten older over the years. And when a fan base gets older, it means eventually it goes away. Uh, how do you get more young people interested in playing baseball and, and in watching baseball and becoming baseball fans, becoming the next generation of fans? How do you improve TV ratings? How do you get more people in the seats at ballparks? Uh, and part of that is the style of play, I think, and the way the game looks on the field right now. And, and those are areas where I think sometimes you can get a little bit too cute I don't like the three batter minimum rule, for example, which is supposed to speed up the game. Uh, to me, it's not about speeding up the game. There's a difference between time of game and pace of play. And when you see pitchers who aren't throwing strikes and when innings drag on forever and every at bat is a 3-2 count, that's a slow game. The pace of play is slow, and that's when people lose interest. And when the inning ends, they flip over to something different. Uh, you know, I'd like to see umpires call more strikes, make hitters go to the plate and swing the bat, that's how you speed the game up. If you expand the strike zone just a little bit, make hitters have to be more aggressive. Uh, and to me, that makes for more action. If I want to see a ball hitting the gap. I want to see a great defensive play. I don't want to see walk, walk, fielder's choice, strikeout, pop-up innings over. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to see that stuff. So I think there are things that baseball can do to make the game more enjoyable to watch. It makes a better on-field product. And I think really, for me, that's the priority right now in terms of moving forward for baseball. How do you make the game more enjoyable for the consumer? Because a lot of people have lost interest in the sport, unfortunately. And I think some, there's some players out there that have kind of helped with that. Like uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., he's just got the baseball world on fire because he's electric. Even when I was at San Diego last year and I saw him playing a game, I'm like, wow, this kid is special. Like every time he was at bat or he was in the field, you just had to watch it. And honestly, they have a great clubhouse culture there. But also on the other side of the country in Miami, I think they also have another culture that is just fun to watch. You watch players like Jesus Aguilar and players like Jazz Chisholm, who just got called up, they kind of have that same energy where it's just like about fun. They just want to have fun while they're in the game. And and like how much how how important do you think that clubhouse culture has advanced just from the past couple of years in which you've seen kind of different teams, but now you see the, the future of the team, the brightness, and you just see that the clubhouse culture has changed from 2017 to 2020. It's completely different. And look, I know the people who read the stuff you write and read the stuff on Fish Stripes and listen to these podcasts are sophisticated Marlins fans. And, and so they're going to understand what I say here. Some will find it quite controversial and will hate it. Uh, look, we all know this team has some tremendous players on it in the past. Uh, and we all hated to see Giancarlo Stanton go and Marcelo Zuna go and Christian Yelich go and JT Romuto go. Uh, and more than anything, Jose Fernandez pass away. But that group of guys, for whatever reason, the whole seemed to be less than the sum of the parts. Now you've got a very different makeup in that clubhouse. 
and the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that's not to say that with Sixto Sanchez and with Lewin Diaz and with Jazz Chisholm and some of these guys coming along, they're not going to be every bit as good and spectacular as some of the other guys I named were. But th this young, inexperienced team that most people thought was going to finish last and was going to be one of the probably four or five worst teams in baseball this year has found a way to stay right in the thick of the race this year. And a big part of it is the culture, the personality of this ball club, the, the kind of players, not just the talent level, but the type of personalities that this group has brought in. And uh, we're watching it transform right before our very eyes. Now, when you have talented players, high-level talents, who are also those kind of character people and those kind of clubhouse presences, that's when you get something that's really, really special. That's how you do what the Yankees did during their unbelievable run during the core four era. That's how the Braves did what they did during their remarkable run, 14 straight division championships. That's a large part of how the Red Sox did what they did over their sustained run. Uh, and that's the Marlins are trying to do here and not just build it up to win one time, but to go to spring training every year, knowing we have a chance to be in the playoffs and uh, things aren't going to always go have injuries. Some other teams going to have some magical run, uh, but more times than not, you're going to have a really good shot to be playing meaningful games at the end of the season because you've built an organization that is deep and talented with high character guys and, and guys who are going to overachieve, not underachieve. And, and that's what we're seeing this year with this group of guys. And look, this isn't a finished product yet. 2020 has been fun and exciting, enjoyable to watch, but I'm telling you, 2021 is going to be better. And 2022 is going to be better than that. Uh, there are still a lot of growing pains going on here. We've seen some guys come up and not perform well and get sent back. And the hope is they'll come back better at some point. But when you think about the talent that has been brought in here, and then you see the kind of character these guys have and the culture that Don Mattingly has developed, it's really special. It's got a chance to be really, really exciting for a long time to come here. And I think that's been the number one thing. I think in 2017, they started the, you know, the new ownership, they started the process in which they had to get rid of everything. And it's unfortunate, but as you said, it is what it is. And they wanted to go in a different direction, but Hey, we're in 2020 now. And as you said, the, the future only looks bright and it's hard to say that the ownership didn't go in the right direction because they're, I like to think in 2017, they started the foundation of the house and now we're in 2020 and we're starting to see the first levels of that house actually come to fruition. And as you said, the future is only going to get brighter and the house is only going to get bigger. And hopefully this is a dynasty. And the number one thing that every player I've ever talked to is always the same thing. And as you said, they're always high character guys. Whenever I used to work out with Alex Bezia, he would always say, I'm a gym rat, but guess what? So is everyone else. We're all the same way. And they're uh, all and that's how, by that. that's how Alex Vesia goes from being a four-year guy at a division three school to, you know, being a middle round draft pick to being in the big leagues in no time because of the work ethic, because of the kind of guy he is. And that's a credit to him. And it's a credit to the scout who saw him and said, you know what? I think this guy's got a chance to be a big leaguer, even though he's not playing in the SEC and he's not going to be a first round pick. But but you put enough of those guys together and that's how you build something special. And I thought you use a great analogy talking about building a house. I feel like this year we're actually starting to move into the house and, and we're not, everything's not done yet. They're still doing a little painting in this corner and uh, the appliances are still being added to the kitchen or whatever. And once you move into a house, it takes a while to feel comfortable to make it your home. But I think this year we've kind of taken that step where we've begun to a little bit and we like our new neighborhood and, and we see that the schools are great and, uh, and we're going to have a lot of fun here in the future. We're not all the way there yet. 
But I thought that was a good analogy that you made. Winona Marte is hit high and deep to left center field. Way back, Gurriel at the wall. Goodbye in his first game as a Marlin. Starling Marte, a go-ahead home run in the bottom of the eighth, and it's 3-2 Miami. And again, it's credit to Derek Jeter, the tone that he set, the captain's camp work, turning guys into leaders, responsible community citizens, guys who want to be role models, guys who can go out and play hard, get the most out of their ability. Look at Miguel Rojas. When Miguel Rojas is the face of your team with the work ethic he has, the personality that he has, this is a guy who years ago was told, okay, you're a late-inning defensive replacement. Maybe you can stick around as a utility guy. And that wasn't good enough for Miguel Rojas. And he's turned himself into a very good, everyday major league shortstop. And it's inspiring for guys around him. And he learned a lot from Martin Prado during Prado's years here. So now Prado retires, and Miggy is the leader of that clubhouse. And he's passing lessons on to the next generation of guys. It's a really neat thing to be a part of. And I know you had to get out of here, so I'll let you go down with a great quote here. What do you think? How? What do you think uh, is going to? If I had to give you one word to describe the 2020 to 2030 Marlins, what word would you use? Wow. Uh, 2020, 2030, I would say consistent. I would say this is going to be a team that over the next decade will consistently show up at spring training with a chance to get to the playoffs. And it doesn't mean you win the World Series every year, but you're going to get to a few of them, and hopefully you win a couple of them. I think consistency is what you're going to see, and that's something this organization has never in its history had from year to year, from decade to decade. The roster is always changing. Ownership is changing. GMs are changing. Managers are changing. Hitting coaches are changing. Players certainly are changing. Uh, I think you're going to see stability and consistency here for the next decade that this franchise has never had. And you go back and look at the teams that have won over sustained periods of time. It's because they've been consistent. Personnel, front office, decision makers, philosophy, they've been consistent. And that's what the Marlins have built. And that's what we're going to see play out now over the course of the next decade i think that is a great and powerful message to end off here and i'd like to thank you so much for joining us and given all the information that you've given the fish stripes listeners and i would just like to say thank you for everything in the broadcast booth and joining us today tyler thank you for all that you do covering this team for everybody at fish stripes and to the folks who read your stuff and listen to your stuff I feel like marlin's nation gets a bum rap because i know what the attendance numbers have been over the years i i get it but I know there is a core group of people very devoted to this franchise, a core group that whether they bought into what Derek Jeter was doing from day one or over time have evolved, I, I know they get it. And as excited as I'll be when this team gets over the hump and wins for Derek, for Michael Hill, for Don Mattingly, for the players, I think about a lot of the fans who are probably listening to this conversation. And I'll be more excited for those people who have stuck with this team through all the ups and downs than I will be for anybody else. And hopefully that day's not very far off. Yeah, I hope not either, and I hope that we hey, I hope we can come out and win a couple games some more. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, Tyler, this is fun. Thank you.